You are listening to the Ivy Podcast. Learn from the thought leaders in areas of strategy, innovation, negotiation, and all things leadership. We interview the Ivy League, Fortune 100, and top startups. Now, here's your host, John Karsibayev. Well, good morning, everyone. Ivy Podcast. I have a very special guest for you guys this morning. Bob Bosberg has a rare mix of management and leadership talent, having spent half of his professional life in the military and the other half in the corporate world. He has flown over 50 different aircraft, is a member of Mensa, has personally coached over 1,500 medical providers and administrators, and receives great reviews on his workshops and keynotes. Bob found it so vital to follow his passion of teaching, speaking, coaching, and helping organizations implement scientific method for continuous improvement. Bob, thank you so much for finding time to be with us on the Ivy Podcast. John, thank you for inviting me. That's great. I know you're a very busy man, so uh, I'm glad we were able to find some time. Um, so I'll just I'll I'll dive right into some of the questions that uh, we have for you today. Um, so as as the the CEO, the chairman of of Survey Vitals, can you share with us what is the biggest problem that Survey Vitals is fixing in today's healthcare? Well, um, as a little background, uh, when we started the company, we were out, we were a bunch of former fighter pilots and a few astronauts, and we'd go out and do what we thought anyway were motivational talks based on uh, uh, a standard outline we called organizational excellence. And that led us to speaking to medical groups. In fact, we spoke to over 28,000 practice administrators over about a six-year period. And uh, as we got into the middle of that, we started hearing about a need for science to go with the scientific method that we were teaching. Um, So the issues that we ended up solving, and once again driven by our clients, um, uh, you know, are several actually. Uh, First of all, we we designed, designed, excuse me, our our, uh, solution to give a voice to all patients. So we're When a survey company, particularly government surveys, are sent after a hospital visit, they only go out to about 20% of all the patients and only about 13.8-14% of them respond. Uh, We go out and give a voice to all patients by sending the the, uh, surveys via SMS primarily, by the way. Things are really, really changing. Uh, We had a 102 or 3-year-old gentleman take one of our surveys on an iPad last month. Um, so times are certainly different than they used to be. So we get 70-some percent of all of our responses via SMS. Uh, we get much higher response rates. Instead of a paper survey that's 80 questions long, our typical surveys are maybe 15 questions long and are completed in as little as 90 seconds. Um, the results of those are analyzed real-time, and if there's a low score, an alert is sent to the practitioner, the physician, the nurse anesthetist, whomever. Uh, immediately, and it says, hey, you got a, a low score as it relates to respecting patient privacy. And on that same email to them, they can then click and get the little guy at the whiteboard, you've seen those online before, who in about 120 seconds says, hey, here's what you got to think about. Number one, if it's respecting privacy, inside voices, make sure everybody's welcome and close the door, simple things like that. So this then improves the, the practice of these physicians. Um, and changes patient perceptions of the care. You know, there are plenty of studies that show that long-term, a more positive perception of care by a patient actually leads to better outcomes. 
medically, physically on that. And uh, with time on the, on the business side, uh, institutions get better scores. Uh, we, for instance, have uh, large anesthesia groups that are paying well under half the typical medical malpractice uh, invoice because they've improved and they've shown the improvement to the, uh, the malpractice carriers out there. So uh, this then, in effect, has effects on reimbursement, right? Whether you're doing a QCDR kind of reimbursement or if you're getting reimbursed as a hospital based on your hospital HCAP scores uh, as well. So. Uh, that's what we're all about. We're very focused. We stay in our lane. We're looking at administering surveys in the most efficient way possible to get the best responses in a, in a real-time fashion so that practitioners can actually improve and it makes a difference. That's great, and thank you for sharing that background. I firsthand I have experience with survey vitals while during my time at Envision Healthcare, and I know, um, you know my, some of my former uh, mentors and leaders such as, you know, like Dr. Marcio always speaks very highly of the service that you guys provide. So obviously, you know, you guys are doing something great. So on, to continue on that, on that note, as far as the background of the story, how the survey vital as a company was born, um, can you just share that briefly? How did you go about getting that launched and what were some of the initial challenges of that starter phase? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I uh, left the military, and I would have stayed in for a full career, but my, my dad was terminal, so I decided to get out and spend a little more time with him. I ended up in the banking industry, and I worked for a uh, Midwest bank called Norwest. I ended up, I'm a numbers guy, so I ended up on the investment side, and uh, then I uh, ran the merger for the investment and insurance part with Wells Fargo. We actually bought Wells Fargo, and I kept the name. And um, that uh, got me into the brokerage side of the business, and uh, I ended up running a couple brokerage companies. Uh, and the last one, very interestingly, um, was actually building a Sharia-compliant online brokerage solution with um, Anderson Consulting at the time, now Accenture. And when 9-11 happened, uh, the uh, company pretty much ended because we were working with clerics in Saudi Arabia and going to Jeddah every month. And, this sort of thing. And when it ended, um, I received a severance from the, the company I was working for that allowed me to go out and, and, and start this business. Um, so um, one of the biggest challenges up front, because it was all self-funded, of course, was having the money to spend in a big way. So we never, ever have borrowed a nickel, um, literally in the, we're at 18 years now, and we've been totally self-funded. That was a challenge. Uh, also, of course, uh, we started from scratch, so nobody knew about us. Uh, we were unknown, and uh, that took some time. Uh, we There's a lot of luck, right? A lot of people say if you're prepared when the opportunity presents itself, um, which is the luck part of it, um, then you're likely to do okay. So, in fact, uh, we were lucky. I was, uh, I've gone through my PhD coursework in aeronautical and astronautical engineering, so I was still doing talks beyond the leadership talks um, at the uh, Air Force Test Pilot School, for instance, I was teaching aircraft performance uh, to the new test pilots. And I ended up at the Las Vegas airport on the way home and a woman sat down next to me and she said, what do you do? And I said, well, this. And she said, well, I'm um, in charge of getting a speaker for the Medical Group Management Association. And would you be interested? So we uh, clicked our bottles of beer and off I went into the medical industry. And it was, you know, really just very, very fortunate there. 
Um, but I was ready when it happened, right? And I never would have expected that at the boarding gate this would this would happen. Um, so we started, as you know, with um, a bunch of speakers, and we did uh, keynotes and three-hour workshops. At uh, about the five-year point, we started ask, getting asked if we, um, you know, could add the surveys, uh, which we did, and we just hit actually 10 million completed surveys this week uh, on there. So that. There are challenges out there no matter what. And in my, um, my history with great mentors that have helped me, uh, I've learned that you stay the high road, you stick to your principles, you work hard, you prepare for the opportunities. And with time, if you have a little luck as well, then you succeed. And that's happened to us. So we've gone from a very, very small company to one that's um, now, you know, we're not huge, uh, but we have quite a few uh, client practitioners now. Uh, probably 20, 25,000 by the end of 2020, the way it's going. That's impressive. I, I love stories like that. You you usually hear stories about entrepreneurs, you know, broadcasting how much money they had raised or the investment, the seed rounds. Uh, but for me, the, the impressive part is the other, you know, the other companies or startups that bootstrapped and you know grow the company on their own without borrowing so that's that's very impressive thank you for sharing that yes sir. um so kind of going back to your your previous life before survey vitals um in terms of being being the top gun the f-16 pilot i'm curious what are some of the leadership lessons that you had learned during that time that you still apply to this day when you were in your professional role at survey vitals well, um, I take it all the way back to uh, my, my dad was um, military. He, he was an intelligence, um, Air Force intelligence guy that knew Morse code in Russian, speaking of Russian, John. And uh, wow. um, so he had these core values driven and uh, we were raised um, with uh, a mantra that uh, friends are very important, family is very important, and the other stuff is necessary. So uh, with that, um, I learned a lot from my father as a, as a, as a child and a, a young man. Um, but when I got into the, the military and I went through an ROTC program on a full-ride pilot scholarship at Iowa State University, um, the program there taught me some things that I, I didn't know, you know, being able to make a command decision, um, and that goes to one of my favorite quotes, uh, which is Yogi Berra, who says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And you've heard that before. Um, and, you know, you making the decision and executing properly, you may only get to 90% of the perfect solution, but there are a lot of people that never get to the solution because they're looking for the 100% answer. So uh, <clears throat> that's one of the things that I, I certainly learned. And um, I think the best way to talk about what I've learned in leadership is, you know, I wrote a book on this and it was, it was used at the Air Force Academy for a couple of years and I used it mostly um, to generate business uh, when I first started this. And I talked about self first, the need for integrity and excellence. And by the way, today with politics in the U.S., um, you can see one over that I like to say the inverse of integrity and excellence is is uh, pretty disgusting. Uh, we won't get into that in any detail. Um, the uh, ability to balance uh, mentally, physically, and emotionally as a person uh, is really a requirement to be an effective leader. But maybe most importantly in the self component is 
finding great mentors. There's a little luck there. I was very, very fortunate. Um, I have several of them that are still on my board. Um, I have uh, people that I quote my book who over the years have, have taught me a lot there. Um, so then once you get beyond the self and you have your stuff together, because you really can't move forward if you don't have it together as an individual, then the focus on the team with proper communication, empowerment of the team, with accountability, however. We will empower people to do their thing so long as they perform well. If they don't, then we'll try to help them, give them feedback. And if they don't change, then we'll help them find something else to do, frankly. And then finally, if you have it together as an individual and you've got the right team in place, then it's all about creating the right atmosphere. And I'm very much a positive motivation model person, so positive thinking, uh, recognition, and carrying the torch with a lot of enthusiasm. So how's that? That's great. Thank you for summarizing all of that. There's you know a lot of leadership principles that you definitely highlight there. One that definitely stands out to me is having the right mentors, and you know I can definitely relate to that. And also, you know, part of the strategy behind the Ivy Podcast as well is for for me to be able to connect with uh, you know great leaders as, as yourself and learn from them. So definitely, thank you for sharing a lot of these insights. Um, in your previous professional career, as you just mentioned, you were a professional speaker, executive coach, a book author. Um, was that a difficult transition for you, going from an independent kind of entrepreneur, so to say, team of team of yourself, to to a leader who of an organization which now employs many people? Well, John, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the the positives associated with being prepared for the opportunity. As we started, I got to where I was doing 250 keynotes and workshops a year. Uh, it was kind of rough on the family, right, um, with all the travel and that sort of thing. That was one motivator for me to find a backup to it. But also, you know, as Bill Gates and a lot of other people have said, only the paranoid survives. So I'm always looking to have a backup plan. So we saw the opportunity to start building a technology side to the business. And we were literally the garage solution where we started with emails and then used a 56k modem which really dates us to start interactive voice response uh, to start running surveys and then quickly move to sms but we were starting to build that right when the recession started and and uh, we um, it, it was proven uh, to be a, a really great thing to do because um, as the recession started we had something like 300 talks and workshops and seminars uh, scheduled for the next year and over half of them canceled for budget so just as if you think about joining sigmoid curves the uh, you know the good business sigmoid curve where you're on the upslope and then it starts to apex and then it starts to fall off to the right um, that was the speaking deal just as our survey business started to upslope so, you know, if you merge those together, what we did is we continued the climb because we had a backup plan on that. So we, uh, first of all, we are still doing some talks and we started getting quite a bit of business for the surveys because we started spending a little more time on continuous improvement, a scientific uh, method, uh, the old PDSA acronym, and we needed the science there. So it all just fell into place at the right time. Uh, we were small enough that we could be very tactical about it. 
And instead of uh, having about 15 speakers, we started building our, our uh, coding staff, our, our programmers. And uh, now, you know, about half of our staff are on the technology side as coders. So it was, uh, it was a very fortunate thing and it happened in a very smooth fashion for us. Great, and you've, uh, I can't help but uh, to continue the topic of the technology of your previous, previous response. Obviously, you guys are a technology-driven organization with the solutions that you guys provide. Um, what are some of the most challenging skill set um, in technology domain that uh, you guys face as being able to find? And I'm curious if you have any specific strategies in place that help you identify and recruit such niche talent? Well, um, we actually uh, were kind of dispersed across the U.S. when we were a speaking organization, and we ended up uh, looking at the U.S. for an area that had technology and opportunity to hire really good people. Uh, we'd read about uh, Micron and HP and some other folks in Boise, Idaho, uh, were actually, because the recession, starting to lay people off. So we started in an office there and started to pick up the people. Uh, some of the people that uh, that came to market there um, so that really is how we we kick-started getting the right people uh, but what we've learned over time and with the unemployment being as low as it is now in the Boise area now where we have our main office unemployment's around two percent so to go out into the market and post things uh, you're going to get those two percent uh, applying for the jobs right so what we've done over the last few years and now find ourselves in a very fortunate situation with an incredible staff is use networking and connections. And we figured out, oh, a few years ago that to get the right people, we're not going to find them by simply posting that we need, um, you know, a new coder, but rather go through our connections and people who are already solid in their existing jobs. Uh, one of my mentors back in Wells Fargo days uh, used to say that the first thing we do when we're hiring someone is look at their resume and if they've had three or more jobs in the past five years, you can anticipate they're gonna have three or more jobs in the next five years. So that's another thing that we look at that's been a great technique for us is people that stay with their jobs. So we like hiring people that have been in a job for four or five years that don't need to leave, but we compel them to leave. Uh, we also do um, a full round of testing, not only for their technological capability and their job skills, but also for how they fit into uh, our culture. Uh, it's a very, very important thing there. And with that, then, we uh, interview with at least five people in the organization talking to every candidate. And if anybody has even a little bit of stomach acid, even if they can't identify why, uh, we pass on an individual. Because as you know, it's much easier to hire than it is to eliminate people. So we want to be very careful about who, who we hire and how we hire. That's great, and thank you for sharing some of those strategies you guys have in place. Sounds like it's, uh, you guys very methodical to the process and very selective. And I like that you mentioned the culture fit because it's, uh, I believe it's of utmost uh, importance. Um, what are the, obviously, you know, you're, you're, the, you're an author of a book and you must read a lot. So I'm, I, I'm curious, what are the top two books, let's say, that you always recommend to others and why? 
Well, there, uh, it, some of them change with time and some of them don't. So I'll share one um, that I always have gone back to, uh, and that's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, I've taught from this book. Uh, it's an amazing book. Uh, the core principles that it shares are so good. Uh, for instance, beginning with the end in mind, just to pick one of the seven, right? Where you say, where do we want to be? So instead of just, you know, an analogy is instead of just picking up the phone when it rings, let's go ahead and call the people we want to, right? So I highly recommend Stephen Covey's book. I also um, just recently picked up a great book on negotiation. And um, this is so good. In fact, uh, I, there's a gentleman on our, our board named Sam Westbrook, who's absolutely amazing. Uh, number one in his class, the Air Force Academy, Rhodes Scholar in Plasma Physics, uh, fighter pilot, uh, oversaw and led the Libya raid, uh, a retired two-star general, amazing guy. Anyway, uh, General Westbrook sent me a book by Chris Boss, B-O-S-S, and it's uh, called Never Split the Difference. Uh, Chris Boss was the lead negotiator for the FBI uh, when it came to international negotiations for hostages and dealing with terrorists and people like that. And it was so good. I, I did a quick read of the hard book and then I, I picked it up on audiobook and actually listened to the entire book twice in two weeks. Um, I think it's amazing um, in terms of negotiation. It relates to business and life in general. So there are two of them for you. I, I'll tell you one other thing. I, I listened to a group speak the other day, uh, and the, the presentation was, I don't know, I guess maybe wrote PowerPoint slide after slide. The slides are too busy. They weren't very engaging. And by the way, we started that way. So I remember the first time I got a big group together, I actually hired a guy named Doug Stevenson. And Doug wrote a book, Never Be Boring Again. And his focus is on storytelling in business. And with my background, I could tell stories about being a fighter pilot, tell stories about the corporate environment, tell stories about cancer in the family. And that made us much better as speakers, whether that be to a group of 800 or in a presentation to a prospective uh, client on ours. So Doug Stevenson's approach is very, very good. And uh, that's just one of those core things that I think many people uh, could use uh, to their benefit. So I, I cheated and gave you three instead of two there. <laughs> well, we'll take that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And for the listeners, we'll make the, the titles and the links to these books available with the episode notes. Um, Bob, is there anything that you would like to highlight in closing remarks? Anything that we have not touched upon? Favorite quote, perhaps? Well, uh, I, have, I have several quotes that I, I use quite a bit. You know, I'm still an active aviator. I take people up uh, for rides in airplanes, sometimes aerobatics in airplanes, and people get nervous. And I always think back to a dear friend of mine named uh, Leo Brolin. And Leo Brolin had a great quote. He used it all the time. He just turned to someone that was very upset about something that maybe wasn't all that important. And he'd say, why have you decided to die all 10 stop? Right? We're all going to die someday, and clearly you're going to die 10 stop. So I always think of Leo. 
when I, I get in these situations where people are like red in the face, you know, with their eyebrows turning white just above, you know, really angry, all the body language on that. And it's, you know, life's pretty short. So people get a little too serious. So I think that's very important. Uh, I already mentioned my uh, Yogi Berra quote about making a decision and moving forward on that. And then uh, one of my mentors, he does the opening for my book, uh, Major General Walter H. Baxter III. He goes by Buzz Baxter. Buzz Baxter uh, says, the world is full of reasonable and unreasonable people. Don't deal with unreasonable people. It's amazing how often this becomes useful. We have the luxury in our business of firing clients, right? So if someone's unreasonable, if they're irate, if they don't treat our people the way they should, because it's a two-way street in business, then we'll say, we think you'd do better with someone else. So the ability to say no and to only deal with reasonable people is our choice. So I think that's a good note to finish, John. And thank you for uh, your invitation today. Great, Bob. Thank you so much. I know you're a very busy man, so we'll let you go. And always, you know, thank you so much for finding time to talk to us today. And uh, I, I'd like to, um, you know, with all of the guests that we host on Ivy Podcast, revisit in a couple of years to see, you know, how things have changed. And I think it's always uh, refreshing to do that. Uh, Bob, again, thank you so much and really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.